You're listening to SNS Online. The clever thing I did was invent the title. Because if you call it That's Life, you can put anything in it. Because <laughs> it's, it's very funny. I don't often write love songs. It's more heartache and stuff, but it's a love song. Um, you miserable and... bastard. <laughs> but eventually David Warner, who played Aggie Cheek, came on. And under his breath, he, uh, he breathed, they've equalised. And then the, uh, the rest of Twelfth Night went very quickly indeed. <laughs> you raced through it. And the lady came and woke you up when it was your time and shone a torch in your eye. It wasn't her fault she was told to do this. Didn't she sort of shake your foot violently she or something? She grabbed your foot to start with to wake you up and then blinded you with your torch. <laughs> What's a gynaecologist? And he goes, you know when you have ordnance survey maps and they stick little flags in? That's a gynaecologist. And I guess final question, what are the 39 steps? I couldn't possibly tell you. (laughs) (laughs) It would be giving the game away. (laughs) Well, I know what they are, and they're... Hello there, and welcome to SNS Online's very first yearbook. A chance to kick off your heels and enjoy some of the very best moments of 2019. And I know what you're all saying. Why have we not done this before? (laughs) I don't think you heard me. I said, why have we not done this before? Better. Well, I guess you'll just have to ask my producer for that one. Oh yeah, that's me. (coughs) Indeed, Series 6 has been the most extensive to date, with no less than 20 episodes of both our long-form and bite-sized shows in the SNS bank. And as usual, our arts lifestyle remit has led us to theatre, music and individual performance all around the UK and beyond, as well as shows focusing on mental health, LBGTQ, disability awareness and more. So, as you're all champing at the bit... Please don't dribble at the back or you won't get your free scone at the end of a programme. We start with our very first show of 2019, featuring Only Fools and Horses, The Green Green Grass, Benny Dawn Legend, Mr John Chalice. This is SNS Online, and I'm still Nick Randall. Enjoy. Marlene, come along, for God's sake. (laughs) Bloody hell, Tony Hadley. Chips and rice. Ooh. Where's the plant that came out of the pot? Stop it! Stop it! Almost recovered from Barcelona. <laughs> Let's take it back uh, initially, yes we do, uh, to your early sort of salad days. Um, you didn't come from an artistic or theatrical background at all, is that right? No, no I didn't. Um, my mother um, came from Bath and in Somerset. And um, she was part of an amateur company there who played at the assembly rooms in Bath. But uh, the war came. Suddenly the theatre closed. And uh, she'd met my father by that time. who was working in the Admiralty. And I came along the first year of, uh, of marriage. And so she never went back. But uh, later on, she became a leading light in an amateur company. And apparently she was on who encouraged you to get into acting when it was quite oh. an alien thing for your dad, apparently. Oh, yes. My dad, my dad was, uh, well, it's, it's the old cliche, he never thought it was a proper job. You know, not a job at all, in fact, <laughs> really. Uh, because he was a self-made man, you know, and um, he'd 
growing up in uh, working-class Sheffield. His, his dad was a steel worker. Uh, but he was blessed with sort of ambition and, uh, and a brain. He got a scholarship to grammar school and, uh, and he started at the bottom of the civil service and worked really hard and finished up at the top of the civil service, mm. you know. Um, and so he, he rather hoped his son would um, be one of those people, you know, mm. to, to work really hard. But I was exactly the reverse, really. They didn't work hard at all. I just mucked about most of the time. <laughs> and uh, he, he threw his hands up in despair and uh, I didn't pass as many uh, GCEs as I was supposed to. I remember him reading the results and stomping off in a bit of a time, wasted all that money, you know, and all that. But but um, I was temperamentally unsuited, really, to, to a proper job. And so I sort of ran away and uh, joined a children's theatre. Um, you know, like, like people say, run away and join the circus, you know, it was that. And I, and I was on tour there in a different town every day. And I loved being on the road. So this is how you got your, your, your training, if you like. You didn't actually go to drama school, is that right? No, no, I didn't. I, didn't, um, I, I could have done, I suppose, if I'd, if I'd concentrated on it. But uh, mm. I hated the idea of going back to school. Yeah. Um, yeah, obviously, it hasn't made much of a difference <laughs> in terms of, you, you know, you've, uh, you've done well, pretty it's well. It's very kind of you to say so. But you if know. you want any tips, do let me know, mate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> no, I'm very fond of saying... Um, I, I'm an instinctive actor. In other words, I don't know what the hell I'm doing, really. But, uh... <laughs> Tell us about some of your early roles, including the film Where Has Poor Mickey Gone and the Christmas single for 10 Days of Christmas. You were a pop star, John Chalice. <laughs> no, 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 it's all lies, I tell you. No, I did this, I mean, uh, 10 Days of Christmas is something I'm slightly embarrassed about, uh, really. It was an idea I, I had in rep, in Chesterfield, a rep for heaven's sake, up in Derbyshire. And they were doing a sort of review thing, and I just had this idea of, instead of partridges and um, and uh, seven maids are swimming or whatever they do. Um, mm-hmm. I five gold rings. <laughs> five gold rings. I thought we'd do it all with revolting noises instead, you see. So this became a bit of a cause celebre, and, uh, and it went down very well, and there was a... Another actor out there called John Finch, who, who eventually became a bit of a movie star. And, uh, and we had a wonderful time doing it. And eventually it was picked up, uh, but John didn't want any, any more part of it. And, uh, and I met another guy in the, in the RSC, and we did it at a sort of a concert down there, and everybody thought it was hilarious. And, uh, and a producer got hold of it, MCA, and they decided to record it. And <laughs> Amazing. Do you know that I've been trying to find a copy of it? For the show, and also uh, also the film I just mentioned, I can't find it anywhere. Oh well, no. Uh, where has Paul Mickey gone? That that is around. So I don't know how you do it. I mm. mean, that was a very early one. That's the first uh, movie I'd done. All skating around Soho, uh, being a bit of a yobbo, um, uh, quite a sensitive yobbo in my in my case. Um, this is with Warren Mitchell. He's playing an old uh, country. Of course. Yes, yes, and uh, he was playing an old conjurer, and we were torturing him. Um, I mean, not physically, but but sort of generally <laughs> screwing up his life. And eventually, he said, "He said, come, I'll show you a bit of my magic." And he made everybody disappear. That sounds quite they, sinister. Yeah. Oh, it oh yeah, it did add a dark side to oh, it. Look. Um, but it was a nice, uh, it was a nice, it was a nice uh, scary story. <laughs> And we'll return to Boise, uh, I mean Mr John Chalice, in a while. Next up, a class act and indeed a legend of broadcasting and consumer journalism. There is nothing like a day, nothing in the world. 
just to say that my wonderful parents who were devoted viewers of That's Life would be so proud that I'm here today to speak to you. Unfortunately, they've, uh, they've died and gone to Hendon, but uh, they, would be, they would be very proud. <laughs> well, that's, that's nice. And uh, they'll meet a lot of nice people in Hendon. Yeah. Um, you know, Cyril Fletcher from That's Life yes. and Bernard Braden, who created Braden's Week. Mm. Um, which was my first consumer show, and of course my late husband will be there, and my parents will be there. So, doubtless I'll be sipping whatever ambrosia, I suppose, yeah. from prosecco. But, but I'm sure they'll be enjoying themselves. Are you are you religious at all? Not even slightly. <laughs> Have been. In when I was cooking, I was also religious in my teens. But something happened to make me a little bit sceptical about all the various answers to the questions we pose about what life is about and how it started and when will the world end and what happens after death. And I, I couldn't find any answers to that. So I'm, I'm interested in religion. I'm interested in the problems caused by religion. I once went on to a program on a Sunday, actually, and next to me there was a... Um, uh, quite uh, fanatical um, Islamist and in the audience there was an equally fanatical Zionist and they started to get at each other and after a while I was asked my view and I said thinking people were going to throw things at me if I were God I think I'd ban religion and I got a round of applause I think a lot of people feel that way you know whether or not you have faith what is happening in the name of faith is sometimes really evil. I'm going to take you back to your early days. I don't think it's a secret because it's on your Wikipedia. You were born in 1940 in the second year of the Second World War. And now, even though you were very young, do you have any recollections of that time? I certainly do. I've got one of those memories that goes back to when I was 18 months old. Wow. Do not ask me about last week. But certainly in about 1943, 44, I can remember... Um, I can remember air raid sirens. I can remember practicing putting on gas masks, taking cover under the dining room table. I can remember my grandmother, we live with my grandmother, struggling with blackouts over the window. Um, I can remember rosehip syrup. I remember rosehip syrup. <laughs> and, uh, and that strange black malt stuff, which was rather delicious. And um, pickled eggs, which were not delicious, and nor were... Winter apples, you know, the apples that you wrap in newspaper and think you can eat three months later and oh, okay. are all wrinkly and horrible. <laughs> so not that I'm against wrinkles, as you will understand, but when it happens to apples, I'm not that keen. <laughs> so I do remember, and I remember my father, when I asked him what an air raid siren was, he said it was a warning that German aeroplanes were coming over. Um, to drop bombs. My, my mother was furious with him for telling me that. And I said, well, are we going to die? And he said, no, because the British pilots are going to go up and stop them. And that, I think, must have been the Battle of Britain. And so when they were celebrating their anniversaries, I was quite vocal about the, the extraordinary courage of those 19-year-olds, not only English, but Canadian and Polish, that went up, you know, losing friends every sortie they did, but turning back the Luftwaffe. And if they hadn't, you would not be talking to me now. Because as a Jew, I would, of course, uh, been immediately consigned to a, a British concentration camp. The thought is 
horrific for Britain and, you know, would have been very tragic for my whole family. It doesn't bear thinking about, does it? You studied English at Oxford, but were quite heavily involved in the Dramatic Society and Oxford Theatre Group. Could we have possibly lost you as a presenter and seen you on the silver screen if things have been different? Never. I was was a truly terrible actor. Really bad. Um, So I did it in the knowledge that I would never, ever be able to do it professionally, but it would be fun to do as a student. And I did some writing for reviews and things, and I did some directing and producing for reviews and things, and we went up to Edinburgh and performed at the festival. So I did do quite a lot of performance, and I suppose that's why, when eventually Bernard Braden came to the BBC with a consumer programme, people thought that I could have a go on the, you know, actually in the programme on screen. Daymester holding court, and we return to her later on. 2019 Series 6 was very much the year of a writer, featuring no less than nine TV scribes, novelists and playwrights, both new and established. So, here's one of them. Novelist, LGBTQ activist and founder of a Polari Literary Salon at the Southbank Centre, Mr Paul Burston. So talking about your uh, your books, obviously Shameless was the first one. How important was it to reflect the LGBT community, warts and all, which is a very much um, a theme in your books, I think? I think, I think that's always been um, a large part of what's driven me as a, as a writer because I think growing up, I was starved of any representation in, in books and I would find my my sort of characters I could identify with where, where I could find them. So, you know, I'd read Stephen King or I'd read whoever and I would find other ways of relating to characters. But I, I didn't really know that there was such a thing as gay literature or, or gay books. And and then I started reading some in the 80s and a lot of them were really good and a lot of them were very earnest and very, very... Um, it was the era of... I, I understand why, why it came about. It was, this, it was the, There was this big focus on positive imagery, it was called, and it was all about we have to present positive images of ourselves. And even though I can see the value in that, I also felt that it wasn't telling the whole truth. And my experience of the gay world at that by then was was not entirely positive. And I thought, well, I think I think we should talk about the things that are wrong in our community as well as the things that are right, you know. Um, and I think doing it with because my first my first novels were, were, were sort of black comedies, and doing it with humour, you can get away with stuff. Um, if you if you if you write columns as I did that were quite kind of in your face, people get quite angry with you, and I used to get an awful lot of hate mail, and people used to come up to me night in clubs and night <laughs> nightclubs and bars and tell me off for things I'd written. Oh um, but if you write it in, in fiction, you can get away with it, and especially if you if you if you if you if you wrap it up as comedy, you can you can tell, you can you can deliver quite sort of harsh home truths mm. if you, if you make people laugh. The boy serving behind the bar oozed confidence the way most of the predominantly 20-something crowd oozed CK1 or Escape for Men. He was cute in that silky, sulky, vaguely Latin way that promised a career modelling underwear for Calvin Klein, or at the very least, a job behind a gay bar in Soho. He was also absurdly 
enviably young, certainly no older than 20. Martin felt attracted and resentful in roughly equal measures. What was it John always said? About yesterday's trade becoming tomorrow's competition? Well, there was little danger of that happening in this case. Martin knew from years of experience that boys this young and this pretty rarely perform sexual favours for anyone who couldn't match them in the beauty states. Pout for pout, muscle for muscle. And at 32, Martin was in rather a different league. I mean, just to say, Shameless uh, was an unapologetic view of the gay world in late 90s London, but also very much a morality tale. Well, that, that, there's, that, I have that side to me. <laughs> <laughs> You're just telling us all off, I, aren't you? Well, it, no, it's, 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 it's the Oscar Wilde thing. It's like, you know, um, you know, the good end happily and the bad end unhappily. That's what fiction means. And um, I wanted to sort of put all of my experiences of, of the gay commercial scene that I was living at that point into this novel Um the main character, Martin, was not based on me at all. He was based on my neighbour, who was called Martin, who insisted I call him Martin after him. <laughs> um, and the, the opening of the novel where Martin comes home and his, his, lover, his living lover has basically moved out and moved in with a male prostitute, um, that, that actually, actually happened, or a version of that ah, happened. A right. version of that happened. Yeah. Not, not, not quite like that, but sort, sort of like that. So that was as a starting point. And then I just wanted to write this story about a character looking for love and, and looking for it in all the wrong places. And also, it was also a reaction to Bridget Jones because... Bridget Jones's diaries come out and they'd been the, the first sort of wave of what they termed chiclet. And in a lot of those early wave of those books, they were always, there was always the gay best friend who had no emotional life of his own and was just there to dispense fashion advice and a shoulder to cry <laughs> on. And it drove me mad. And I hated them so much. I hated those characters so much. And so I wanted to, write, to reverse it where, the, where the, mate, the gay character was the kind of old romantic and it was the female character who was the wild one. So Caroline, the best friend, is actually the wild one in the story. She's yeah. much wilder than Martin is. Scratch and Sniff. Online! With Nick Randall. Paul Burston there with book narration by Anthony Townsend. But from the written to the spoken word and the BBC's Marion Marshall retiring after close to 40 years loyal service reading the news on the World Service and Radio 4. She's also read for us over the years. Don't you know, don't you know? Where did you get that beautiful, perfect <laughs> diction from? I mean, were you sort of training to use your voice in some way from an early uh, time? At school, I, I did have an elocution mistress, Mrs Roberts. She had blue hair. What? And, yes, she had blue hair. In those days, uh, ladies sometimes dyed their hair blue. Well, they still do. They do now, for sure. But in those days, maybe a little oddly. Um, and she was the drama teacher. And she had right. a, always a glass to her hand. We thought it was water, but I think it was gin. <laughs> oh, gin, right. Yes, I'm sure it was. Anyway, Mrs Roberts, she was a great lady and she made us speak properly. Yes. Definitely. Properly. <laughs> yes. I thought you meant she, right. the, the glass was to put on your head or something like that. <laughs> no, to no, sort no. of walk balance, just, just you know. Just for her to lubricate. Yes, as, as it were. So right. to speak. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when did you start sort of getting into sort of vocal work then? I mean, was that something you decided to do from very early on? or I'd, Yes, I just liked the sound of the English language mm. being spoken. I always had, have done and at school, again, um, doing a bit of acting, mm. but I wasn't very good on the stage. I was mm. much better just being a, a, the voice. Mm. Um, it, it just seemed perfect for me. I fitted in very well with providing mm. the voice only. Definitely. Yes. And, and it's just watching what other people do and um, how, how you use the voice. You're very, on radio, you're very exposed. Indeed, if you are tired, it will come over. 
you have to be very careful, indeed, actually, um, and not put your own personality too much if you're doing news, particularly. You must be very, very careful. I've got to say... I would trust that voice to the ends of the earth. I was saying to people that you're leaving do recently, but if you if you sort of told me very calmly to jump off a cliff, I'd think, well, there's obviously a, a very good reason for that. And Marion <laughs> Marshall said, no, 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 don't do that. Don't, don't do, do that. that. No, don't ever do that, Nick. <laughs> so presumably lots of memories all this time. Bush House, of course, let's yes. talk about that. Yes, yes, an incredible building. And my department insisted that uh, we should sleep there overnight. The shifts uh, encompassed a break in them overnight, uh, four or five hours of nothing. What on earth are you meant to do? Well, they provided some beds um, in very inappropriate places. It was a good idea to provide the bed, but actually you must also provide the conditions in which to sleep in it, which they did not. Um, and they were in terribly cold rooms, always very uncomfortable, or they were in the dormitory. <gasps> what a horrendous experience the dormitory was. It was like a hospital ward with individual cubicles with curtains around oh each God. bed. And a lady came and woke you up when it was your time <laughs> and shone a torch in your eye. It wasn't her fault she was told to do this. Uh, it was dreadful. It was so noisy. Dreadful. Didn't she sort of shake your foot violently she or something? She grabbed your foot to start with to wake you up and then blinded you with your torch <laughs> to wake you up. You wouldn't be what allowed to nightmare. do that now. No, you wouldn't know. <laughs> Oh, no, it would be totally illegal. What a nightmare that was. <laughs> Terrible, really bad experiences. The many beds the BBC has had me sleeping in. But not bad, though. You get to sleep for five hours while you're being paid. If you can sleep, that's a good oh, idea. Yeah. If not, you might just be staring at the ceiling and wondering what that green light is up there. Oh, it's the fire exit, little man running to the door. <laughs> Why? The perfectly pronounced and rather splendid Marion Marshall. You're listening to SNS Online's 2019 yearbook, covering our shows from Series 6. Tales of a City author, Armistead Morpin, is next in line as we catch him mid-UK tour. you describe the overall premise of Tales of a City? Um, boy, 40 years of writing, um, one paragraph. People living in an apartment house in San Francisco, uh, finding love and drama and mystery. Um, it's kind of an adventure in a way, an urban adventure. Um, Everybody gets his moment. It uh, was heavily influenced by Alfred Hitchcock. There's pictures on the wall here in the house. Uh, because I love stories that, uh, you know, the way in which he, you never knew exactly what you were seeing. That's one of the reasons I love it so much, because there's lots of twists and turns. I think I can imagine you writing crime very well, because you, you've got that sort of mind where you can really lead people down uh, different uh, routes where you don't know. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Do you feel you're one of the early few early writers who gave the LGBTQ community a three-dimensional voice, or do, are there any other people you can think of around your time? Um, now you're going to get me in trouble. I'm going to be some sole <laughs> gay writer's going to come, what about me? Um, well, of it influence. Was, it was pretty radical, yeah, yeah. what I did. You were allowed in to say popular, that. Uh, popular context, yes. popular fiction that people got to read, straight people got to read. Yeah. Um, and it was, uh, 
exhilarating to be doing that. I loved it. The house was on Barbary Lane, a narrow wooded walkway off Leavenworth between Union and Filbert. It was a well-weathered, three-story structure made of brown shingles. It made Marianne think of an old bear with bits of foliage caught in its fur. She liked it instantly. The landlady was a 50-ish woman in a plum-colored kimono. I'm Mrs. Madrigal, she said cheerfully, as in medieval. Marianne smiled. You can't feel as ancient as I do. I've been apartment hunting all day. Well, take your time. There's a partial view if you count that little patch of bay peeping through the trees. Utilities included, of course. Small house, nice people. You get here this week? Is it true people would eventually come up to you uh, at the San Francisco Chronicle to impart their own stories or gossip that they had heard in the hope of you putting it into your column? Yeah, they, they kind of auditioned for me. Uh, and, uh, and I often got to use it. Oh, Not always, yeah. but... And you merged facts with fiction. So just to explain to people, uh, Tales of a City was uh, sort of um, a fictional account of, of, of people living in San Francisco, gay, straight, etc. But the news seeped through, so it, it added a touch of realism to it. Yeah. Mm. I basically said it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's pretty much what it did. But what you also did, you managed to sneak in sundry references to gay bathhouse sex, transgender identity, etc. I mean, was that quite an uphill struggle with your bosses? Well, they found, when they found out that Anna Madrigal was transgender, they told me I couldn't reveal that for a year. And I obeyed. And it was the best thing I could have done because I had the audience loving her. And by the time they found out her dark secret, um, it wasn't so dark anymore. They knew her and loved her. At the end of a do-nothing day, Marianne brought the Sani Femme home with her. Finding Mrs. Madrigal in the courtyard... She showed the device to the landlady and gave a terse explanation of its function. What is it? It's a Sani Femme. It lets you pee standing up. Funny, said Mrs. Madrigal, her smile showing only in her eyes. I had to wait 42 years for the privilege of sitting down. Marianne reddened. It was easy to forget that Mrs. Madrigal hadn't become female until roughly the time that Marianne hit puberty. Armstead Maupin with book narration by Deb Joshi. SNS featured no less than five theatre productions located all around the UK in 2019. One of them, Tarek Jordan's Ali and Dahlia, has since been shortlisted for Best Play at the annual Writers Guild Awards, and well deserved too. We talked to Tarek back in March during rehearsals at London's Pleasance Theatre. Ali and Dahlia was inspired by my travels through Israel and Palestine in 2014 and also through my own background as I have a Russian Jewish mother and an Iraqi Muslim father and I wanted to explore the relationship between two young children who meet during the construction of the West Bank Wall in, in the early 2000s and I wanted to see the struggles that these two children would go through to keep this relationship alive over many years. It's inspired by a lot of my, I guess, my own background in terms of growing up in 
with two different cultural backgrounds, really, Iraqi Muslim, Russian Jewish, and looking at the similarities between the two, while also looking at the situation in Palestine and Israel and the struggles that these two children would go through. But there was a particular time when you were detained yourself, wasn't there? Yeah, so when I arrived in Tel Aviv, I was held and questioned for around 12 hours overnight. And what it came down to was this idea that this individual didn't see me as Jewish because my mother had married a Muslim. And for me, I wanted to really explore that to see where that type of, where those views come from, essentially. Of course, you've got this wall that divides these two people, and walls don't unify any people. They just segregate. So, yeah, I really wanted to look at that and see how this relationship can survive, if it can survive, and it follows Ali and Dalia, it follows their lives over a 15-year period. The king is coming. There were some comical moments, and even as a writer, I, I thought to myself, I don't think I would have been able to make this up if I tried. So my phone was taken off me, and it was searched, and he was going through all my contacts. He was saying, what religion is this person? Who is this person? Where do you know this person from? And it just went on and on for, you know, for this, this was for about two hours. And then he, he eventually turned my phone around. He, he had hold of it, he had it unlocked. And he said, you've been lying to me all along. You've been lying to me. And I, I said, no, I haven't. And he said, no, you have, because I found something suspicious in your phone. And when someone says that, you start to believe them because you're like, you know, your, your paranoia gets to yeah. you. And he turned my phone around, and there was a contact on the screen called Lebanese Ali. And I'm like, that, well, you've put that in my phone. I don't know who that is. It doesn't even make sense. And he said, no, who is this? Tell me now. And it got quite heated. He was waving my passport in my face, saying he's going to get rid of it, destroy it. And to be honest, the first thing on my mind was, please don't destroy it because my travel insurance doesn't cover that, but it does cover loss, so maybe just lose it. But he turned the contact around, and it said Lebanese Alley, and I did remember who it was, and it was my local kebab house from when I was at university. <laughs> I love it. It's hilarious. So I, I guess he didn't believe you. He did, no, he didn't believe me. I, just, I told him to call it, and I gave him the regular order that I normally order when I, was, when I used to go there. But ultimately, it's just the kind of the craziness of it all that, I mean, you know, what did he find out about me during those 12 hours? And I have a Jewish mother, Muslim father, and I quite like kebabs. I mean, it's that crazy. It's that crazy. And it goes on a lot. People get held and detained when they go through Tel Aviv and it's become normality and it shouldn't do and a lot of people I speak to they said yeah but it happens a lot well that's not justification no. for anything like that Israeli troops then fired warning shots and after these were ignored they shot at their legs Palestinians claim the people were a group of farmers who were trying to retrieve parts from the wreckage of an Israeli jeep I guess when it comes to the idea of Arabs and Jews, I wanted to, the idea of them living together, there seems to be this narrative that they, they are always divided. And this comes from us seeing on the news constantly the physical barriers and also the act of aggression that's constantly taking place. 
And I had to look at my own background and look at how the similarities between these two cultures was was always a part, was always something that I was very proud of. And if I'm honest, I don't really feel that the the situation out there comes down to religion or culture necessarily. All it comes down to is geography and the maps and borders and land grabs. And until we start taking responsibility for that, then only then can we move forward. Johnny Benjamin, MBE, is a mental health ambassador who came to the SNS studio back in early 2019 to tell us his story. This extract also features his poem, The Edge of Waterloo Bridge, read by Anthony Townsend. Standing on the edge of Waterloo Bridge, with a cold wind cutting my face, I glance down to the Thames far below. It ebbs and flows, a sea of waste. I hold tight to an iron bar behind me, fix my gaze on the hands of Big Ben. Behind me, the busy morning commute as chimes strike a quarter to ten. From here, heaven feels so close. My madness dosed with urge. London sits majestic in its sphere as my feet inch off the verge. So, so you made your way to to the bridge, and and you know we're actually considering ju- jumping off. But then a stranger came to speak to you. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, my my head was. It's difficult to describe what my what was going on in my in my head. I was um, I was, just, I was very desperate and. Um, uh, I, I was completely hopeless, um, and uh, you know, I I I I got to the bridge and um, I went over the edge to the you know to the to the ledge, and I I was I was there, and to be honest, I don't remember how long I was no, on the ledge no. for before this stranger came along. I don't yeah. think I was on for very long, and then suddenly out of nowhere, this this stranger, this guy was next to me and and talking to me and um i was uh <laughs> i was a bit startled then abruptly a voice behind me hi there my name is mike i pretend not to hear but he carries on whatever it is it isn't worth your life mute i turned to meet the face of a man barely older than myself smiling gently he says with sincerity you will get through this, mate. I can help. Well, at first, I, I, I just, I didn't want to, I didn't want to engage with this, with this stranger. You know, I just, I wanted him to just leave me alone and, and go away. But, um, there was something, um, something about this stranger, this, this young guy. He was very, um, just very grounded, very calm, mm. and he said, "I'm not, I'm not going anywhere." And, um, eventually, I began to engaged with him um and um yeah there was just something very different about this 
stranger. He was just he he had this this kind of uh, aura about him. Mike's voice is calm. Mine sounds so weak. As I speak, I begin to cry. I don't know what I'm doing anymore. I was so certain I wanted to die. Yeah, the, he kind of uh, pulled pulled me out. Began to pull me out of the, my world, the distressed place that I was in. Pull sure. me into his kind of world, and um, I don't know. I think you know, looking back, maybe you know, he was this young guy, a few uh, just a few years older than me, and he was um, he was on his way to work, and I don't know. There was something about him. I just I was drawn to, I guess. Um, and then, uh, you know, we began to really talk, essentially, which was hard, but um, I began to I began to open up to this guy because I, I felt uh, comfortable and safe with him, which I hadn't felt before. Mm-hmm. But um, it, was, it was freezing, and he said to me, well, he said to me a number of times, you know, let's go for a coffee. There was a coffee shop down the end of the, the bridge, and he said to me, you know, you and me, let's just sit down. We can chat in the warmth, and eventually, yeah, he kind he he got through to me. He got through to me. But as we converse, me and my mic, this need is starting to lessen. His words of hope give me reassurance, lift the fog of my depression. Sounds like he was exactly what you needed. Yeah, he was for sure. I mean, I'm. <laughs> You know, I look back and I, I feel incredibly lucky because, you know, talk about kind of a sliding doors moment. Because I mean, somebody else could have said, "Hey, what are you doing?" But they wouldn't have the the, the right skills to tap into to, to talking to you in in the way that he did. Yeah, he had this he had this real just empathy and kindness mm. and um, this gentleness and this this like patience with me. Um, and yeah, and and I really, I really, I don't know. I just felt I could open up, and yeah, mm. I think it was a, a lot to do with. I didn't feel judged by him at all. Um, I don't know. It's like nothing sort of phased him. Heavy rain is beginning to fall. We could go for a coffee. He suggests. Talk it over. Mike holds out a hand. Takes a careful step closer. I take his hand. He grasps mine tight. You'll learn how to cope, he says as I climb to safety. Around me, he places his coat. Johnny Benjamin. Well, we head all the way to Melbourne, Australia now to catch up with musician and singer-songwriter Mr Bradwolf. And I do dance with devils But I think you'll find my love is blind as more than a devil Is there an 
I just wanted to talk about some of your your amazing music. I've heard so much of it, and I, I what's striking me is there's a real epic vibe to some of it. It's like sort of hitting the ground running, ballsy, confident starts to to many of your tracks, and uh, you know, really catchy and, and very eclectic in terms of your influences. From my point of view, it seems to come from like sugary pop to ballads to a dark '80s Depeche Mode slash soft cell vibe uh, with great titles as well, full of intrigue, which draws one in. Also, good production as well. Thank you. Well, um, just just going back to, uh, did you say dramatic? Well, that was uh, there was you know you said epic. That's right. Epic. No, so there, there is this. I had a, I had a description recently on another group where it was like I think someone said it was um, dramatic songs, <laughs> which I really loved. Um, I, I, I guess, and, and you're right. There is a, is a huge range of, of influences there, and, and I hope that comes across. Um, I, I mean, I, I come from a, a theatrical and, and writing background myself, um, and so obviously with these songs, I, I try and tell stories and, and, and lyrics. Are just as important to me as the music. I wouldn't want to be a bookmark either. I am quite hard pressed to find you. I wouldn't want to be a space between the dead and the driver. I have lost my place, but I'll find it again. I will start from the start while you skip straight to the end. All these bookmarks, chapters I should close, keep coming back for seconds to that same old story I know. I mean, I love the fact that it is very eclectic, so there are a lot of different styles. I'm not gonna be the one to take the fall when your boot pushed. And I'm not gonna walk on water just to drown in your bad books. I'm never gonna take for granted all the truth that you have claimed. I'm never gonna be your Jesus, whether I am straight or gay. Jesus on the gay scene is really about um, how, as in the gay scene, we tear each other apart um, within ourselves. We are supposed to be a community and we're supposed to sort of be united against, you know, conservatives and homophobes and far right idiots and all that kind of stuff. But then within our own community, we also tear each other apart and we don't support each other, Um, you know. Without going into detail, because I don't want to offend anyone, um, and look, the, the, the lyrics will do that just fine. Um, but <laughs> but it's really it's it's really about how, as a community, we we need to both respect our differences and also support our differences. Um, and you know, there are a few lyrics in there which might bite and might offend people. Um, but the chorus is meant to be my mea culpa and me sort of saying, look, you know, because myself as a gay man, I'm I'm, I'm not really into drag, and I, I don't really like the nightclub scene um and there are a lot of gay people out there that really want to you know be as provocative and out there as possible and they didn't believe in in equal marriage you know they didn't want it because they thought well why would we want to be heteronormative and why would we want to aspire to be that and so there is that sort of elements of the gay community that, that wants to remain separated and then you have that element of the gay community that wants to actually um be assimilated you know wants to actually just be a man and and being gay is just very secondary to who they are as a person or a woman mm. um and i guess that's what i am as a gay man is that i'm openly gay but I'm, i don't you know really 
fall into a lot of the usual categories mm. of being gay. And and look, maybe that's maybe that's a lot of my own internal homophobia. Maybe I know I've got a little bit of it. It's, it comes from my upbringing in the conservative, sporty family. Um, and you know I'm dealing with it in my own way. But sure. at the same time, I also in my free time, my idea of fun is not a dance party. Mm. Uh, it's not drag. Um, it's not taking drugs. It's certainly not leather. All that kind of stuff. Mm. And I've come a long way to learn to respect that that's other people's things. Okay, that's, well, that's um, good. Yeah, because because for a lot of time I, I because I didn't like it, I was very arrogant and stubborn sure. and thought you know, like that 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 I would a- attack that and I thought it was <laughs> terrible. So I, I've come a long way too to learn that, that that just because I don't like something, uh, my well, my latest philosophy in life, to be honest, I know it sounds so simple, but really, if if I don't have anything nice to say about someone, don't say, don't say anything. <laughs> More music and chat with Brad in the wild. Well, SNS has been sometimes known for its rather grand and sometimes quite left-field introductions to big shows. Amblin Entertainment showrunner Mickey Fishers was as out there as it gets. Don't worry, Scratch and Sniffers, it's just me, Nick Randall, Very Light Entertainment. I'm currently trying to track down today's special guest, but he's not making it easy for me. He's created this amazing program called Reverie, Reverie, which allows you to relive your favourite dreams or create your very own new ones that you can exist in and live out your fantasies, well, at least virtually in your head. The real me's actually slumped on a park bench near a well-known budget supermarket in East London, clutching my bottle of vodka like a good'un. But in here, I've lost four stone. I look like Brad Pitt in his prime, and I am smelling great. The only problem, dear readers, is that I've hotwired the program to jump into somebody else's reverie, namely my guest, in order to find him and scratch and sniff him. But consequently, I'm a little bit lost. I think I'm in an eternity corridor. Anyway, it's made up of clouds and light with your blue butterfly fluttering past. Get out of it. Quite pleasant. A tad disconcerting. The corridors just opened out into a large circular room. Hundreds of wooden doors are growing to full size all around me. I guess he's behind one of those. Hello? Sorry, sorry. Perhaps uh, get a lock for that, guys. No one's seeing that. It's like a jungle in there. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. Wow, a massive 1950s TV floating in space. Hang on, I'm floating in space. Let's tune it in and see what's on. Hang on, I recognise that face on the screen. Mickey? Mickey Fisher? Amblin Entertainment's finest? Creator and showrunner of Extant, Reverie and so much more? Well, there won't be any more unless you leave me in peace to meditate and write. Oh, sorry, sir. I just arranged to interview you for... for SNS Online? You know, scratch and sniff. Oh, are you the British guy looking to unearth all my secrets, eh? Why do you think I'm hiding in my very own private reverie, Mr. UK? Charming. Uh, excuse me for asking. Why have you got a cartoon octopus serving you drinks and peeling you grapes one by one? Listen, what I do in my private reverie is up to me, kid. And I thought you were just bashing it out on a typewriter. 
Well, once I ensnared Mr. Mickey, we got down to some serious chat about scripts and Hollywood with some very sage advice for all budding script writers. One of the key mistakes that people can do is is, is writing something to try and uh, position it for success. You know, writing, you know, trying to write something that you think is going to sell because that's selling right now or or it's something that people are looking for and something people want. And I think that that's, that's always a huge mistake because if you're exactly what you're saying, if your heart isn't in it, I mean, you, in the best of, in the best case scenario, um, you know, you sell the pilot or you sell the series, it goes, you're going to spend two or three years of your life on this, yeah. you know? And so it has to be something that like it, it, when it gets hard, when it gets frustrating, that you can always go back to the core idea and go like, I, I really love this thing mm. and, and, and I want other people to love it too. Um, and so if your heart's not really in it, you know, if you're like, well, look, uh, you know, vampire things sell and I'm not really a fan of vampire stories, but I'll, I'll write this cool vampire thing and that'll be my ticket in. Well, a, your heart's not going to be in the script. And then B, you know, if, if it does manage to sell, then you're going to be, you're going to be spending two years, three years of your life on that. Welcome to Hollywood. Everybody comes to Hollywood, got a dream. What's your dream? What's your dream? Hey, mister. Hey. So, you know, essentially, you're a Hollywood outsider, but with huge dreams. Now, obviously, spec TV pilots, so much as I respect any person who's written anything like that, in Hollywood, you know, might be considered to a penny. And solicited manuscripts, you know, making it through to series is, is pretty well unheard of. But you did it. So if we just talk a little bit about that, that incredible journey. Yeah, no, it's, it's a, it's a crazy story. And I mean, it's still like every few days I'll be reminded of, of like how it all eventually, uh, you know, came to a head. And as much as I'd watched television, as I love television, I didn't really understand the actual mechanics of writing an episode of TV. Uh, so I took some time to do that. And I just basically, I sat down with a, a remote control in one hand and a, a pen and paper in the other and, uh, was watched episodes of my favorite shows and really just like, from a technical standpoint, how many scenes are there? How many acts? How long is each scene approximately? Absolutely. Because uh, I read some of the, you know, the, the shows you studied, including my favorite Doctor Who. <laughs> so good for you there. Yeah, I, was, I, I would tell people too when I was writing Extant that I put a, a post-it note on the corner of my screen that, that said basically WWSMD, what would Stephen Moffat do? Uh, <laughs> well, I, that, now that is a question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I studied, I studied Doctor Who. I studied Friday Night Lights, and it's funny. I always tell people like the accent was, you know, kind of, was kind of like a love child between those two things. Because it was very much about this, you know, aliens and robots, but it was also about this family story at heart. Um, so I wrote one pilot that was kind of okay, and it was sort of a test pilot. And then I wrote the pilot for the show Extant um, that I entered into a contest, and because uh, I was living in Orange County, didn't really know anybody who was in Hollywood at the moment. Uh, a few, a handful of people, but. But um, but really was having a hard time getting it into people's hands to read. So I entered this contest. I came in second place. But uh, part of the contest is as the prize, they want to put it in the hands of people who can do something with it. And so um, so it got to this manager, this guy, Brooklyn Weaver, and he called me and said, you know, I think we could change your life with this script. Mm-hmm. And uh, and from there, I was meeting with this agency, WME. Uh, the next day after I signed with them, they said, let's send it to Steven Spielberg. Let's just, let's send, let's start there. <laughs> and like, uh, sure. That sounds great. <laughs> mm. uh, and, and, and it's crazy. And so, um, we sent it to Amblin, the people who run his company really liked it. They said, look, we don't do anything unless he's passionate about it. So they sent it to him. And then shortly after I got a call here saying, you know, Steven Spielberg likes your script and wants to do it. 
So apparently it was your 40th birthday when your script for Extant uh, was accepted and you met, obviously, Steven Spielberg, who was uh, one of the producers on it. Uh, What was he like? And how was that feeling on your 40th birthday to have such an achievement? Well, I'll tell you that I had talked to him a few times on the phone. I didn't meet him in person until we were actually shooting the pilot. But I talked to him a few times on the phone for note sessions and things like that. He was out of the country the whole time we were actually like taking the show out and selling it. Um, but the coolest thing that happened was we, you know, we'd taken it out. We had pitched it everywhere. We got this offer in from CBS and, and the deals were closing and they were getting ready to make the announcement. And it was all happening on my 40th birthday. And so the very first thing that happened on my 40th birthday was I woke up. And we had this like team call with all the producers and the showrunner and, uh, and Mr. Spielberg. And, uh, and as we're waiting on him to jump on the phone, I was just kind of like just I, I just had to tell them I was like, you guys, this is crazy. But I have to tell you, this is my 40th birthday. And so when Stephen came on the phone, they were told him, they were like, hey, Stephen, this is Mickey's birthday and it's 40th. And he was like, oh, that's wonderful. He's like, yeah, I remember my 40th birthday. I was on set and, uh, you know, the crew made a cake and stuff. And so it was, uh, it was, it was very cool. It was like, a, and he was like, this is, and I think he said something like, uh, this is a great way to start the next chapter. Oh, I love it. It's, it's just such an inspiring story. I tell you. Be quite brilliant and rather lovely Mickey Fisher there. And yes, I am a raging fanboy. But from Hollywood, we turn our attention to London's Royal Vauxhall Tavern, host to the first ever Para Pride event. And stepping out into the sunshine, we chatted to one of the organisers, Joseph Williams. So my name is Joseph Williams. I'm the executive director of Parapride. Um, my role is to basically make sure that, that, that Parapride is successful in the ambitions that we've set out. Um, as an organization, we were founded to normalize the social experiences of all people in the LGBTQ community uh, with a particular focus on disability. Um, 40% is identified as uh, having a disability of some form, that being uh, physical disability, sensory disability, um, uh, a, a mental health condition or a chronic health condition. Um, and for almost 50% of our community to have a compromised experience, um, given the opportunities that are socially available to them, uh, just isn't fair. Um, So one of the most important uh, aims and ambitions for us is to make what is available to all members of our community equal. Our ambitions are very clear. Um, We want to take Parapride around the world. Um, We're currently building some technology to help us achieve that. Um, We're basically building Airbnb, but for people with disabilities, focusing on social uh, events and uh, venues um, and social uh, spaces. Um, So we'll be working extensively with uh, the corporate world, with uh, with retailers, with uh, theatres, with cinemas, with all different types of organisations in ways in which they can better understand what access is um, and how they can make adjustments some simple I mean we're not not everybody like the RVT for example can make huge structural changes um, to bring in uh, accessible bathrooms Um, however you can hire a portaloo you can put high contrast signing in place you can have BSL interpreters um, on site to be able to interact with the deaf community so that's something that we're really going to be focusing on over the next five years particularly first in the UK then throughout Europe and then moving into uh, the world hopefully within the next 10. So Daniel Lowell, I've known you for years and now you are heavily, heavily involved in Parapride. Perhaps tell us about the journey you've been on to be here today initially. 
Well, Nick, as you know, um, you know, I haven't been disabled for many years of my life. Uh, uh, four years ago, up to that point in my life, uh, um, I was leading a very regular life, uh, you know, active, uh, working, uh, having fun, traveling. And then uh, um, pretty much out of the blue one night, I fell ill. I was uh, brought to hospital. I was diagnosed with uh, meningococcal meningitis and septicemia. And from that moment onwards, my life uh, uh, has never been the same since then. Um, but at the same time you know like uh, for the type of illness that I had it was um, I am very lucky to still be around yeah. um, so uh, that sense of gratefulness of uh, still being there has um, motivated me from keep going and uh, not stopping and uh, ultimately doing something for my community that um, that can um, help other people who are LGBT and disabled. Absolutely. So it, uh, just just to explain to people, because obviously this is a radio interview, you lost um, uh, both your legs uh, d- during this. So as a consequence, yes, yeah. of uh, the uh, septicemia and meningococcal meningitis. So uh, I, that means that I've lost both of um, my legs from uh, below the knees. Um, luckily, uh, it happened at an age where I was able to rehabilitate and um, and learn to walk again on prosthetics. Um, so um, so yeah, that that is how I lived my life now so every year to mark the anniversary of what happened to me i choose to do it in a very empowering way so in previous years i have uh, done triathlons and this year uh, as purely as a coincidence uh, that happens with power pride because today is the anniversary of what happened to me four years ago Obviously, you know, if you could flick a switch or whatever um, to return as you were, I, I, I guess you would say yes. But all the, the, all the positive changes that have happened and the people you've got to know and being involved in Power of Pride, surely that has very much enriched your life, or the thought. That's right, Nick. I, to be honest with you, um, you know, you would, you would think that if uh, there was a way to reverse time, um, I would choose... Uh, for things to be different but actually I don't I I, I don't it, it, because uh, yes you know losing your legs it sucks but you know um, I'm still alive first of all I'm still able to live uh, uh, my life independently uh, I still have uh, uh, luckily a lot of support from friends and family and uh, my disability has uh, empowered me in uh, many different ways even though it has uh, you know sometimes it is uh, an obstacle it it, 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 is, it it does create barriers but it has empowered me in many other ways and um, and I have learned so many things through my disabilities that I would have never have done um, if it wouldn't have happened to me I want to break free to John Chalice now as he recounts his attempt to watch the 1966 World Cup whilst performing on stage with David Warner and Ian Holm in Twelfth Night. Not an easy feat to pull off. Well, uh, we had uh, we had quite a few gaps. Um, there were 
Because we, we just played courtiers, really, uh, most of us um, young people. <laughs> we, uh, we had a matinee, had a matinee of uh, Twelfth Night, and um, so we couldn't watch it, and everyone was gutted. But there was a little uh, electrician at Stratford who was a mad football fan, I mean, real fanatic, and uh, he couldn't bear it, so he rigged up um, a chicken wire aerial on the, on the outside of the Stratford Theatre, and he fed a line through to a little band room right under the stage. <laughs> Pankes, the referee looks at his watch. Any second now, it will all be over. So we can't go to games. So, so all these actors, you can imagine dressed in Shakespearean costume, <laughs> all speaking like that, because the show's going on upstairs. And of course, it's intensely dramatic, and occasionally you'd, you'd be so engrossed in the game, you think, Christ, I'm off, you know. So I'm supposed to be up on stage, so people's constantly coming and going, rushing up the stairs. And then coming back after their entrance and a few lines sort of breathlessly going, what's this going What's this going <laughs> You know what happens when you're watching football. 30 seconds by Ah Watson, the Germans are going down and they can hardly get up. It's all over, I think. No, it's... What about the end? What about the end? Oh, the end, yeah. Well, we had to leave before... Not, the... not the play. <laughs> the end of the game. Uh, no, this this was um, yeah. This we couldn't watch the end. England were leading two oh. one, and it, well, could they hang on for the last ten minutes? But we all had to be on stage for the famous final scene. So we had no idea. Can you imagine doing this, trying to concentrate? I mean, we're talking it's about like missing the moon landing, isn't it? Yeah, it's Stratford. I mean, it's a it's a serious theatre. This yeah. you know, it's supposed to be very professional. Yeah. But with no idea what's going on, but everyone was sort of shaking with nerves. And you could hear the people left behind underneath the stage going, Oh, that's it. Oh, you know, um, all that's going Oh, it would make a brilliant sketch, wouldn't it? But eventually David, Wa- David Warner, who played Eggy Treat, came on. He was the, was the last man on. And under his breath, he, uh, he breathed, They've equalised. <laughs> and you can imagine, everybody's face just dropped. Oh. And then the um, the rest of Twelfth Night went very quickly indeed. <laughs> you raced <laughs> through it. <laughs> As we got down the end, and, uh, and of course there was extra time, and, uh, and of course uh, the famous story happened. Absolutely. They thought it was all over. It was then. <laughs> yeah. We Fantastic. Did, we nearly got sacked. <laughs> and here comes Hurst. He's got some people on the pitch. They think it's all over. It is now. John Chalice pulling his hair out in 1966. We now turn to Linda LaPlante, CBE, actress, TV crime writer and novelist. Sometimes I come over as a comic, you know, I'm fooling around a lot. But the reality is, if you're a writer and a producer, you spend hours in solitary confinement and you have to work exceedingly hard, even harder nowadays than I did at the beginning with Widows, because you have so much competition. And... um, it's a side to me I very rarely show. Um, I think predominantly I like to encourage young writers, but I also find it 
at times very difficult to really explain the solitariness. And that's only broken by research. Yes, of course. Yeah, and research, you know, I live by that. If I can't meet it, talk to it, I won't write it. And your research has got to be said as forensic as the procedures in the police. What are your memories of Radha? Not particularly likeable. Okay. Um, again, I was too young to be there. Very naive. Um, so naive, I don't think you would believe it. Um, I can remember a very funny story. Um, there was a girl that I thought was incredible. Her name was Morag. And she used to smoke jeton cigarettes, which I thought was fantastic. She also had a leather handbag with a suede lining. And she had a short cropped hair. I thought she was the bee's knees. And she was terribly laid back. Apparently her mother was a very famous actress. And one time in the canteen, she said to me, have you got a gynaecologist? And I said, um, have you? She said, well, of course. Of course I have. I just wondered if you'd got one. And I said, oh. At lunch, Ian McShane, John Hurt, I said to Ian McShane, what's a gynaecologist? <laughs> and he goes, I know what that is. You know when you have ordnance survey maps and they stick little flags in? That's a gynaecologist. I said, why has Morag got one? He said, I don't know. <laughs> now, that is to show my naivety, but also <laughs> in McShane's. Yes. You know, he wasn't joking. He was absolutely serious. Uh. Um, but no, Rhonda, <laughs> you know, I was by far too young to be there, by far too naive, and... You know, if, as I said, I'd done dance training for many years and to have to spend two hours, three hours every other day learning how to curtsy was, to me, the tedium of all. I mean, I loathed it. And again, casting-wise, I would either be a waitress or, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, because I was very small, tiny little thing. It sounds like you had you were successful in theatre roles. Though. That that seemed to f- uh, flourish for you. Royal Shakespeare Company, no less. Oh yeah, but I mean, not until a long time later. And in fact, when I left Rada, uh, just before I walked out, I knocked on the principal's door, and I said, um, it, "It's very important, at Rada, the big." drama academies that you actually have a showpiece because all the agents come to the theatre and vote or you can get an agent from your last performance as leaving drama school so you run to the board to see what parts you've got and I had an 80 year old a 75 year old who aged 10 years and a 70 year old Trump, that was my final terms after two years at Royal Academy, old age pensioners. So I went to the principal and I said, would it be possible to understudy your daughter? She seems to have every leading role. And he said, well, this is preposterous, Linda. What you have to realise is you're very short, you're not very good looking, and you probably won't come into your own until you're in your early 40s. Thank you. And of course, he was proved completely wrong. Ha! More from Linda later on. 
It's time for some live and unplugged music now, recorded especially for SNS during our interview with musician and singer-songwriter Michael Armstrong. All the flowers in the dirt With all the heartache and the hurt There's a brand new morning coming Breathing in that honeydew Filled my head with thoughts of you I could hear the bluebirds humming The sound of a choir filled my empty ears This is a love that's true A love that's true I've always been a lucky man Doing all the things I can Coming up smelling of roses And beauty hides itself within Like the thorn upon a stem That's just how nature juxtaposes But this is as clear as the sky I'm gazing on This is a love that's true A love that's true Well, these days need a song of praise And a rock to hold on to And I'll be there in weather Hush or fair, that's a promise that I made to you. A love that's true. A love that's true. Love so true A love that's true Musician Michael Armstrong there, strumming it like a goodham. Now, Black Box Theatre proudly presents a play within a play, unearthing the secrets of the 39 Steps. The 39 Steps. I've counted them. HT2217. HT2217? What on earth could it mean? And what the deuce were the 39 steps? Accused of a murder he didn't commit, Mitt. Richard Hannay is on the run, following clues left who's left to him in a little black book by a mysterious American gentleman. He must uncover the secrets of the 39 steps, steps, prove his innocence and save Britain 
from the forces of evil. Bell. So, Chris, good to have you on the programme. Uh, firstly, why the 39 steps? And uh, what was the reasoning behind quite a radical retelling of it? Um, th- I wanted to actually uh, do a play that was set in a radio studio. Um, originally, I thought perhaps I'd like to do Macbeth, but <laughs> that might have been oh my God. a bit, bit too ambitious. <laughs> and then I, I had basically I had three ideas. One was A Christmas Carol. One was The War of the Worlds. And the other one was 39 Steps. And I actually I, I got in contact with uh, our venues and said, which one do you think the audience was the audiences would uh, respond to best? Mm. And they all came back, apart from one, and said the Thirty Nine Steps. And I think partly it's because it's in the British consciousness. It's one of those stories. Either people read it at school uh, a long time ago, um, mm. or have seen the film, or they just kind of know the name, the Thirty Nine Steps. And what one of many films we must add? I think about that three or four. I think there's four. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the the best known one is probably the Alfred Hitchcock one, which I think was 1935. Yes, I would have thought so. Mm. Yeah. One problem I had with with the book was there were no women in it. And my last two plays have also been um, all men. So I thought I've got to put a, a, yeah. <laughs> some female characters. I wouldn't it. pass the Bechtel test with it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in actual fact, you know, it was it was lovely. So to, to actually sort of include some, you know, or sort of write in some female characters, use bits of the book, bits of his narrative um and then making up, you know, bits to just join it all together and make it hang together as a, as a story and as a radio play. This is the, the one thing I was really wanting mm. to do, was make it work as a radio play. Right. And, of course, that involved, um, or what I wanted it to involve, was a lot of sound effects and done live on stage, very much in the old sort of style uh, radio studio. Yes, wonderful. I mean, do you see it more as a like a meta comedy, if you like, Alan Noises Off, or do we have moments of genuine engagement with the original story? I mean, quite a question. Um, it's it's funny actually. I was, I was talking because I, I suppose because there there is a stage version of the Thirty Nine Steps, which written by Patrick Barlow, uh-huh. which is very much based on the Alfred Hitchcock film. Um, but that is, I would suggest, that is much more of a comedy, um, oh. and. Um, I kind of wanted, obviously, I wanted there to be, you know, some comic moments in it, um, but while sticking sort of pretty close to this, the the original story. Um, so I would say it's a it's a it's a drama with light-hearted moments in okay. it. And I guess final question: What are the thirty-nine steps? I couldn't possibly tell you. <laughs> <laughs> It would be giving the game away. <laughs> well, I know what they are, and they're... I hurried along the concourse to find my train. I say, which platform for the Newton Stewart train? Platform three, Gov. Uh, thank you. You'll just catch it if you run, mate. Thank you. <laughs> Excuse me, is this seat taken? No. Would you mind? No. Help yourself, lovely. I put my bag in the overhead rack and settled down for the long journey ahead of me. 
Do you mind if I smoke? As long as it's not a pipe. I can't abide the smell. Makes me heave. Don't worry, dear readers. It's me. Some blackguard did try to shoot me, but the chap was such a bally rotten shot that he missed all my vital organs, ricocheting off my silver cigarette lighter I had in my upper left-hand jacket pocket, then off Mrs. Bear Crumble's mangle, and finally exploding her fishbowl instead. R.I.P. Gums and Moby. Time to chat to one of the actors now, the fabulous, charming and effervescent, I never knew he wasn't, Mr. David McCulloch. Some of the things that we come up with uh, to create the sound effects, there's kind of a knowing humour to it, like we have to create the sound effect of a train, and I don't want to spoil how we do it, but... Uh, the, it's hoping that the audience will look and go, ah, that's clever, and kind of laugh along with that. And also the fact that, so my character, Roy, the sound technician, is having to come on and do multiple voices, most of them set in Scotland, and at times having to talk to himself a few times. But obviously people will hear people having a conversation, three different characters or two different characters. What they see is one guy kind of going, rah, 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 just it looks like madness, but hopefully sounds... Good. <laughs> so this is quite testing for you as an actor, is it? In a, in a nurturing, fun way. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's hilarious that I get to come into what is essentially work and have an absolute blast and I can call it a job. But at the same time, it's absolutely knackering. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure it is. Um, I mean, just so just to be clear, we are watching um, uh, that presumably there's microphones on stage, yeah. actors with scripts, sound effects mm. chaps or chapesses in the wings. And I'm sort of thinking Goon Show in, it, in its heyday of that sort of thing. Isn't it? Kind of, yeah. We've all got... So we've learnt the scripts, but we've got to have the scripts in hand to make it look as if yeah. we haven't learnt them. So it's really weird. So in my first scene when I'm doing the radio play... I'm saying all the lines and it's brilliant. And the director's like, you need to you need to look at the script. Otherwise, it seems a bit unbelievable that this sound guy has come in and just gone, oh, I've got a photographic memory. Here we go. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So you've got to you've got to know what you're doing, but also make it look like you don't know what you're doing, but make it look like to the audience. That's the point. There are huge amounts of characters, but a limited number of actors. And you can have so much fun with that. And it um, for me as an actor, it's really given me a chance to, um, how does that phrase go? Chew the scenery. <laughs> <laughs> you said it, not me, boy. <laughs> oh, no, I'm fully aware I'm chewing the scenery. And at times, Chris gets to say to me, um, you know, don't be afraid to, you know, really go for it. And I'm like, that sounds like you want me to chew the scenery even more. Brilliant. <laughs> <clears throat> because there's been five novels featuring Hannay, uh, this is the one that people seem to come back to. I mean, what happened to the other novels, don't they? get them airing in uh, films and stuff. Did the other novels get a Hitchcock adaptation? Well, quite. I think that's I think that's it. I think a lot of people were introduced to The 39 Steps because it's a Hitchcock film, and that's where a lot... Because one of the things I didn't realise um, is that in the book, it's pretty much an all-male character list. Like, the character of Lady Emily, I thought, was part of the story from the beginning, but apparently she was an introduction in the play and the Hitchcock film, which I didn't realise at all. For a bit of uh, romantic doodah. Yeah, essentially. A yeah. bit, 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 bit of uh, early 20th century skirts, as they say. <laughs> we can't say that, can we? I just said it. I cut it out. I think because that's a product of its time, really. It was, you know, the whole... And I yeah, think I mean, that, that's what I meant. That adds to the appeal as well from 
an audience standpoint, from a male audience standpoint, you want to go on this exciting adventure and you want to get the girl and all of the. It's it's a cliche, but it's a cliche that seems to have worked because the Thirty Nine Steps has gone on to be this huge um, franchise, basically. Black Box Theatre there with their unique take on John Buckham's classic novel. How would you describe that's life to, say, somebody living on Mars who's never seen it? A very peculiar programme. <laughs> and also how it evolved from the initial, it was pretty well a purely consumer programme initially, and it changed a lot. Yes, the clever thing I did was invent the title. Because if you call it That's Life, you can put anything in it. Mm-hmm. So it was a really nice, wide category. And it meant that although we did start with faulty washing machines and cars that broke down and boots that fall to bits, we then, when um, Debbie Hardwick rang the office and told us that unless her toddler son, Ben, had a transplant, he would die in a couple of weeks. We could put that story into the programme too. And, you know, I don't know where that story would go now. If I look across the board, maybe the one show? If it went on the one show, it would reach between four and five million viewers. And I guess social media campaigns and things like that. I have no idea what they reach, Mm. but we reached 18 million viewers. So... We got Ben his transplant and changed, actually, transplantation medicine in this country because transplantation had more or less stopped. So um, we brought it back to life. That show was a massive power of good. It was almost like, you know, the moral compass of a nation. That's how I sort of look at it. Is that rather a grand way of explaining Yes, that is a bit grand. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what I mean. I mean, you know, you were always sort of... Um, Highlighting people who, you know, were hypocrites or, or uh, who had um, caused upset or... Well, I suppose we did. We told stories that the viewers had alerted us to. Um, but we tried not to preach. Okay. You know, I, um, I think the way you treat your viewers... Hugh Weldon, who was someone who trained me, he was head of programmes at the BBC. Of course, yeah. A fantastic man. <laughs> He said, always assume in your viewers maximum intelligence, minimum information. So you must never take their factual information in the programme. You must never assume viewers know stuff, because they may not. But you must never assume they're stupid, because they won't be. In fact, I went to a lecture when I was training, and Hugh said... Your viewer is going to be much more intelligent, actually, than you are, because you'll be riven with nerves and a bit tense and worried. They'll be relaxed on their sofa, and so they'll be quicker and brighter than you at that moment. So don't patronise them. What fantastic advice. It's just so obvious as well, isn't it, when you think about it? I know, I know. He was brilliant. Mm. And um, also, I've always found it's never any good making programmes for them rather than us. I think that's Simon Cowell's great strength. He makes programmes that he would love to watch. And you can tell he's, he's passionately involved in the programmes he's on. Because otherwise you do start to patronise or you do start to talk down to people. And really what you've got to do is treat your audience with respect. And they will then 
relate to the material you're offering them. Esther Ransom. Now to Southampton and a rather different take on a Shakespeare classic. See how he rests his cheek upon his hand. I were a glove on that hand, that I might touch that cheek. Hey, me. He speaks. Speak again. Oh. Romeo. Romeo. Wherefore art thou, Romeo? Hi, my name is Troy Chessman, and I am playing Romeo. Hi, my name is Bevan Thompson, and I'm playing Juliet. So I, I was part of the production last year as well, um, and Romeo is, is a really interesting character in this context because obviously it's an all-male production and we're, we're looking at his sort of coming-out story. So Juliet's obviously a male as well, and what we're really exploring is how sexuality and stuff is, is perceived in sports and things like that and we're taking to all these considerations you know how it must feel for somebody to to live in that world to to come out in that world and it's really quite thought-provoking for me as personally like when I, I put myself in his shoes I'm thinking actually how must this feel like how does it feel from the outside looking in you know and the importance of love and ultimately it's still a love story but everything else that sort of comes in the way and the barriers and it's it's a, it's a wonderful journey for me it's Romeo he goes through a lot in a very short space of time. It's such an interesting character to play in this context. Uh, obviously, it's there's still the same line, still the same character that it was written back as uh, as a female back in original. But um, it brings out so much more of a uh, feisty nature in this character, someone who has experienced sexual relations before but never experienced love in this sense. It's because it's a, a female character. We all know it as a female character in the history. So I, even I find myself calling uh, Juliet a she yeah. as much as a he. But a, well, it's just like Doctor Who changes genders. Yeah, we exactly. don't have to worry yeah. about it these yeah. days, do we? Yeah. <laughs> we went to Edinburgh last year with it, and this year we're, we're back again, bigger and better, I think. We're performing at Assembly. I don't know if we can say that. But, yeah, we're performing at Assembly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, we're, we're in a bigger venue. and a, a, That's a pretty good venue. It's an amazing venue, yeah, so I'm really excited. And then we're also going on tour with it as well, so we're reaching Bournemouth, we're going to Oxford, we're going to London, um, yeah, taking it to new audiences, which is really exciting. And then later on in the year, we're also doing a schools tour, which is, for me, I think is the most important thing, because we're going to be spreading this message with younger people, which I think is really important. I have night's cloak to hide me from their sight. And but thou love me, let them find me here. My life were better ended by their hate than death prorogued wanting of thy love. Dost thou love me? I know that wilt say I, and I'll take thy word. Yet if thou swearest, thou mayest prove false. At lovers' perjuries then say Job laughs. O oh, gentle Romeo, if thou dost love, pronounce it faithfully. Curious Pheasant Theatre's all-male production of Romeo and Juliet. Now, to a mysterious event in the life of John Chalice. One thing I wanted to mention, because you, you said something very interesting about seeing your grandmother, who you were very close to, who waved to you near your house, and then when going into the house, you discovered that she had died that morning. 
And this was before you even had found that out. Now, yeah. Elizabeth Sladen had very similar experience to you when she was in a, uh, a, a theatre in Liverpool. Um, and uh, she saw somebody walk past who she knew quite well and waved yeah. heartily yeah, yeah. and then found out later that he had died like a couple of days earlier. Now, that that's really interesting to me because, you know, unless you're just making it up, which I, obviously you're not, how, how does... How do you get around explaining something like that? Is it because you're more sensitive as actors? Is there energy, do you think, that, that exists, floats around a bit after death or something? I think, I think, um, I think some people are sort of uh, more prone to it than others. I, but I've always had premonitions. I mean, not on a, reg- not on a fantastic regular basis. Mm. And I know, I know, I saw. I, Did you just see a clear as day, just normally, yeah. as you would see any, anybody else? I'd gone to my parents' house and she waved and I waved back. She went up the side gate, which I thought was a bit bit strange that she went in again because you would have expected her to to wait there and on the pass and because uh, I just come back from work working mm. state agency at the time and that's such a shock of my life when uh, mm. my mother met me um but you know rather comforting as well to think that you know clearly if you saw as plain as day you know you yeah. weren't even it wasn't even in your head that because you knew she had died i think that's i think that's really interesting and also very comforting because <coughs> clearly it's implying that i'm not saying there's a god or whatever but I, it just implies that there's more going on that we don't know about and that that's that's quite nice yes oh, i think i think it is yes I mean, uh, human beings think they're omnipotent and they know mm. everything and they can prove everything and da da da. But there are certain things still out there that uh, are dif- very difficult to explain. No questions for me. Am I just moving in? Just moving out? Just moving in? This isn't my furniture. It's junk. Got some gorgeous stuff back at my old place. Not curious about me? Why do I leave it behind? Aren't I going back for it? Of course I'm bloody going back for it. As if the flat hadn't been firebombed. I've been following you. I know. Hello, my name's Louise Jameson and I'm playing Anita. Hello, my name's Thomas Moy and I'm playing Davy. Vincent River's a visceral, very dark piece. Not without humour. It's a play about hate crime, uh, which is sadly on the rise hugely since the whole Brexit thing. Not quite sure why one has facilitated the other, but there we go. A very important play, and it's written, it's a brutal subject written in the most poetic way by Philip Ridley. Anita is damaged and grief-stricken and complicated, and I'm not sure I'd like her if I met her in real life, but I love playing her. She's a kind of actor's dream. Every little detail in this play is so important. Every word's meant to be there. As an actor, it's a, a joy to just go on stage and, and work in Vincent River. Davy is a young man who is incredibly terrified. He's very nervous, and when people are terrified, they are led to sort of do extraordinary things. They're very unpredictable, um, and they, they can just be very quiet one minute. You have no idea what they're thinking, and the next completely frighten you and terrify you. I think he has that. He's very, he's very scared. He's very damaged. He's very streetwise. He's, he's, he's smart in a way that he knows how to protect himself. He knows how to survive. And he's doing that as best as he can. Hello. 
Every night I look out my window where I lived before. There you'd be, down in the playground. Then when I got the keys to this place, there you were again. Standing beside the burnt car at the end of the street, I wanted to cry out, What the fuck do you want? But you looked so bloody scared, I didn't want to frighten you away. After all, I knew it had something to do with my son. Oops-a-daisy. Touched a nerve, have I? Without giving any spoilers, uh, the play starts with Anita inviting her stalker of 18 weeks into her apartment that she has only just moved into. Um, She's had to get out of her old place, where she's lived a very long time, in a hurry. Reasons you find out. So it's it's a very high adrenaline beginning, but we still have a lot further to go. I'm Robert Shavara and I'm the director of Vincent River. It's a play that I love. I love Philip Ridley's work. I think it's work that's kind of lit by lightning. It's extraordinarily held and sensual and direct. And when I've read Vincent River, which is about grieving mothers, lost children, catharsis, I thought I had something to offer to that. And so Phil said, are you interested in it? I read it overnight and I said yes straight away. And it usually takes me weeks to make my mind up about something. Within the 10 years it last been done, hate crime against gay people especially has gone up by 78% in the last five years. Did you kill him? No. It was more than one killer. So? A gang, apparently. I wasn't one of them. Know who they were? What? No. Have your suspicions? No. My son. You knew him? No. No. I think Tom is... um, a star in the making. I really do. This is his second job. Um, and what Tom has is all the training of drama college combined with a rawness that is extraordinary to be on stage with. I feel incredibly safe on stage with him. Just more curiosity then, is it? Want a good gawp at the victim's mother? It's not like that. What then? Tell me, for fuck's sake. It was me who found the body. SNS returnee Louise Jameson and Thomas Mahi both offering powerhouse performances in Vincent River. In the beginning, there was the Maker. And he made all around us. He made all the men and all the women. He made all the creatures on this, his earth. The Maker loved each and every one of us. But then all us men and women betrayed him. They took his trust and spat on it. And the Maker was angry. He sent us down into dark earth to atone for the sins of our forefathers and mothers. And one day, tis said, the Maker will give us a sign and we will all be forgiven and we will all rise up to the land and the light that the Maker holds there in his palm will be given to all of us, and all shall prosper in this life and the next. The introduction to Liz Hyder's standout debut novel, Bearmouth, set deep in the minds of Victorian England and singled out by the Times as children's book of the year. Here, she explains how she was inspired to write this extraordinary piece of work. I got angry. <laughs> You got angry? Um, I got 
angry. Um, so I went, um, I live in Ludlow in South Shropshire. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm from London originally, as I'm sure listeners will be able to tell from my accent. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm not far from Wales. And I really like going to the, the, the Welsh coast. I think the Welsh coast is fantastic. One of the kind of best coasts in the world, you know, great walking, whatever. Mm-hmm. Went over there kind of for a walking holiday, really, and it rained. Dear old Wales, it rained. So... I couldn't go for a walk, so I, I went down a slate mine because <laughs> I was like, it's indoors, we can do that instead. As you do. Um, as you do. <laughs> and um, and it was just extraordinary. And I've been down, I went down mines as a kid, you know, I got taken down the odd mine as a kid. Um, but I didn't really sort of remember it. And I knew that children worked in mines, you know, back in the day. And But I'd kind of forgotten all of that stuff. Mm. And then going down this mine and seeing, seeing that, you know, boys from the age of 12, they did have their right nostril slit on their first day when they worked in that mine. And it was to prove that they were kind of man enough to work there. But also it shows that you're the property of the mine, really, as well, at the same time. It's like branding. I, yeah, it is. It is totally. Form of branding, yeah. It's totally branding, but it's also kind of almost in a way like voluntary branding by the group who work there. So there's sort of a cult element to that as well. Mm. Um, and the other thing, there were a couple of things in, in, in that same mine. It's called the Clamfair Slate Caverns. It's just south of Harlech. Um, there's a big stone figure in the rock. I mean, you couldn't make, uh, this is what I was thinking, you couldn't make this up. There's a big stone figure in the rock that the workers used to doff their caps to as they came in and out each day, um, which obviously became then, you know, a, a key part of, of Bearmouth. And the other thing was that, there was a stretcher there, like a, a kind of a stretcher from 80 years or so ago. And it's a coffin without the lid. Um, and if you think about it, it makes sense. If someone has, if you have an injury down in a, a mine and you want to get someone out to the top, you don't want their arms falling out and around everywhere. So it kind of makes sense to carry them in something that has got, you know, <laughs> sides, I suppose. Sure. But it just made me think, this is awful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like it's extreme exploitation. So, yeah, I got angry. And then I started thinking about, you know, zero hours contracts. And I thought about how exploitation has sort of been rebranded now as opportunity. Um, And, yeah, that's kind of where it came from, really. And then the voice of Newt sort of just popped up in my head. And I always knew um, who Newt was. And I knew that Newt would speak in that dialect. So that Newt's learning to read and write in the book. And so the spellings change uh, and improve as the book goes on, yes. which was a nightmare to prove, I can tell you. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I had a lot of very good people working on that. Um, but, yeah, that's kind of... So it started from a wet day in Wales <laughs> going down a slate <laughs> You're listening to SNS Online's 2019 yearbook with me, Nick Randall. Now, Lyndall Plant talks about the conception of one of her most famous television dramas. I, I have been very fortunate because the way I work now is the way I began um, for the very first show, um, which was Widows. And um, I really, truthfully, didn't understand the word commission. I'd written this two-page treatment, which is, again, something I try and lecture to students how you write a treatment to sell something. Don't send a complete manuscript. Don't send a complete novel. It won't be read. But a treatment, you you learn how to write a treatment which encapsules your story, encapsules your characters. Not all of them. That will come later. What you want is somebody to pick it up and think, oh, 
I like this. Oh, I haven't seen this before. I'd like to meet the writer. Then when you get in that door, that's when you can embroider and lengthen your story and tell more about it. You know, this is so interesting because I'm actually doing working on something at the moment and uh, I was going to send them so much more, but I've been t- told by a number of people, I think you've, you've sort of sold it to me, that I, I need to hold back some of my ace cards. Not necessarily the ace card because your ace card is going to sell it. Oh, uh, okay. What you have to do is be very careful how you write it. So I can remember very clearly exactly how I worded Widows. Don't ask me why I chose to write it that way. I don't know. Call it the luck of the gods. But also, because I'd attempted a couple of other treatments I'd sent in, (laughs) and they were all rejected, apart from Think All Women. And somebody had scrawled across it, this is brilliant. And that was similar story through about widows, but... Not in any way representing the, what it became. So I took that and I polished it. And I just remember very clearly exactly what I wrote, how I wrote it. And it covered only two pages. And so for some extraordinary reason, I put in on March the 15th. <laughs> I always say March the 15th because it's my birthday. <laughs> Oh, happy birthday for March 15th. <laughs> and I'm always using that because I think, well, you can't forget that. So then there was a, a robbery, attempted robbery in, in, in the underpass, which went disastrously wrong, killing. And I named Harry Rawlings, Joe Pirelli, Terry Miller. And the dead bank robbers left widows, Dolly Rawlings, Linda Pirelli. And then in the next paragraph, because I'm nearly, I'm, I'm spacing it, and the next page, grief-stricken, Dolly Rawlings, older than the other widows, more experienced, a woman who had longed for children, and a woman who worshipped her husband, found the plans of his next robbery. And she decided to pull it off herself. That was it. Da, da, da. But that was it. Unbelievable when you yeah. think about it. And Verity Lambert didn't know who Linda LaPlante was. So she, via her secretary, asked if I would go in for a meeting. And I went into Euston Films, and her secretary said, Oh, um, well, Verity's waiting. <laughs> went in. She looked up from her huge desk, and she said, Oh, don't tell me. You're Linda LaPlante. And I said, yes, I am. <laughs> Since she knew you as... Uh, as, as a, an actress. Yes, and as an actress. Yeah, yeah Linda Marchal. And um, she said, uh, we all thought you were a transvestite trucker. The <laughs> <laughs> uh, joke, everybody joked. I mean, Linda LaPlante can't be a real name. Oh, I see. Yes, it's far too exotic. Yeah. Yes. And so she said, oh, my God. So she said, look, as... It happens, here's again luck, but it's also what you can as a writer look at to help you. That you can actually think what they're all going to be looking for. And it was good fortune that she was looking for a female-driven series. 
and the rest, as they say, is history. Now, a story that starts on a boat called Windrush. Well, believe me, I am speaking broad-mindedly. I am glad to know my mother country. I've been travelling the countries years ago, but this is the place I wanted to know, darling London. This is the place for me, Bruno. On June the 22nd, 1948, the MV Empire Windrush arrived at Tilbury Docks in Essex, bringing workers from Jamaica, Trinidad, Tobago and other islands as a response to post-war labour shortages in the UK. The influx ended with the 1971 Immigration Act, when Commonwealth citizens, already living in the UK, were given indefinite leave to remain. Remain, that is, until 2012, where changes to immigration policy alter the legality of many. To mark this rich and so far mostly untapped history, BBC Four have produced a series of eight monologues written by eight prolific writers and starring some of the nation's best talent. One of the writers is Carmen Harris, ex-Eastender scriptwriter and, more importantly, SNS Online returnee. And she's back to tell us more. I'm told that Soon Gone and Windrush Chronicle will challenge... This is what it's got here. Our collective understanding, regardless of race, of what it means to be part of the Afro-Caribbean community in modern-day Britain. So without giving too much away, can you expand on that sort of mission statement, if you like? Well, I'll put it like this. Um, All my life that I've been in this country, um, I've really been defined by what's out there in terms of um, especially the media and the wider population um, defining me in terms of headlines and the headlines are not usually positive Mm. you know so in terms of um, a black caribbean person i see things like popping up like um and the riots and mugging and sus laws and knife crime and stephen lawrence and Mm. deportations and all all that negativity and it seems to understand who I am and the wonderful thing about this series for the first time is I get to tell you the wider population who I really am Mm. and what I'm about and what I'm seeing when I look out so um so it's way beyond the headlines it's getting to a real earthy reality of, of the good times and the bad yeah, you know, it's it's um, you, you get one side coming at you, but actually um, that is just such a tiny sliver of who I am, what my community is all about. And um, it's just such an amazingly vibrant survival community. And, um, and that's borne out over the eight monologues. You just see such... Um, such commonality and such um, differences in experiences as well. It's a huge celebration. So talking about the actual show, you've been working with the likes of Seleni Henry and Kwame Kuyamar, Artistic Director of the Young Vic Theatre for this, for this project. How was it working with such a dynamic powerhouse of a team? Oh, my God. They're, they're just amazing guys. You know, they're, they're very 
very intelligent, articulate, they have a vision, and at the same time, they're just good fun. And it was, um, you know, you can imagine amazing working with them, but also the wider team as well. Um, when we had our first meeting, our first team meeting, what was so amazing about it was that we spent the first half of it not actually um, dealing with the work in hand because we were having this explosion of shared experiences and shared stories. And, um, you know, there are lots of different, um, I can't remember how big the team was, maybe 30, 40 people mm. coming, not just from Jamaica, but from the other islands as well. But everybody um, knew the same things, could talk about the same upbringing that they had, the same reactions to basically a, a poverty lifestyle in this country. Um, and it was just amazing. You know, I just, oh my God, I've landed, here I am. Um, and I can be me amongst other people who understand me. So yes, it was amazing, wonderful being with Kwame and Lenny, but also with the wider team as well. Sure. And it must be referenced uh, that all the directors are female, just just a little bit of a you know, yes, girl power yes. there. <laughs> Yeah, no, that was amazing as well. I was going, I forgot to mention that, but yeah, three female directors, all of them young. Um, how often does that happen? And now back to Tales of a City author, Armstead Morpin. I read about a time when you uh, met some of the other party, uh, which I think, you know, ended in a, quite a sweet way. Uh, you, you were invited to a party that had a wonderfully accepting and sort of disparate crowd of kind and friendly people, gay, straight, etc. And there's a wonderful quote in your book. Um, it was then that I saw how life could be if you just let it happen. It was a revelation to me. Was that a real turning point? That yeah, that was a theater. It was a theater party. Mm. And the theater has always been... Uh a refuge in that way because they've accepted everyone. Everyone can be everything in the theater. And it was gay and straight and young and old and a very, very handsome man that took me to bed that night. And I found out uh, many, many years later that he had been Ian McKellen's first lover. Yes, that was amazing. And yeah, I found out when Ian was doing his one-man show at uh, Stonewall 25, and he t started talking about lovely Kurt. And I, th I went backstage and I said, Kurt Dawson? <laughs> well, wasn't there somebody else in on this conversation who said, oh, I've had him too? <laughs> Ter Terrence McNally. <laughs> he was a comfort to many of us who were in the theatre community. Clearly. Time now to pop back inside the RVT to see what's a happening on stage, starting with the wonderful mistress of ceremonies, son of a tutu. Can I get an amen? And before anybody complains, I'm an atheist. That is an atheist amen. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Love ya. <laughs> anyway, this is a variety showcase. So our next act is going to give us some poetry. Ooh. So please put your hands together and help me welcome to the stage the one and only Wonky Wordsmith. Sir, the 
Sources of antiquity, treated freakery with cruelty. But unlike long ago, my solo freak show of modernity is respectfully about the beauty of deformity. So I'm Ruthie Adamson, a.k.a. Wonky Wordsmith. Wonky because it wasn't my fate to be straight. So I am asymmetrical and homosexual. And um, they're the very things that have brought me to Power Pride today, which is a festival which is actually tailor-made for me because I identify as a queer crip. Um, I've reclaimed the name crip. I don't understand that it is originally meant in a derogatory way, but to me, it's, I've uh, reclaimed it and I'm empowered by it. And I'm a very... Um, proud member of the queer community and the crip community so for both of those thing, communities to be brought together today uh, I'm in my element oh that's brilliant so how long have you been doing this act for um, it started uh, literally as a hobby for fun it's still fun yeah. um, but three and a half years and it's got a life of its own now. What um, other gigs have you done then? Um, All around the country? Or? Uh, yeah, I've done a lot of gigs nationally. I've also been uh, invited uh, to be a guest poet internationally in New York City. Oh. So that's on my to-do list. Oh, that's brilliant. Um, I do perform partly for fun, but mainly for activism, uh, to use the power of words, uh, to convey important messages, so that those messages either really resonate with people, so they feel empowered, and if they don't really resonate with them, then at the very least, to raise awareness. That's brilliant. To, to give people food for thought. Ruthie Adamson, a.k.a. Wonky Wordsmith, from the very first Power Pride at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern. So, we're now on the final leg of this extended exploration of SNS Online Series 6, with a couple of shiny new audio treats for you. The first via Classic FM's Bob Jones, who came into the SNS studio to interview me. Yes, me! All about podcasts for an outside project, which we now replay here with his blessing. Prepare yourself for a brief SNS Online history lesson and possibly the odd podcast tippet into the bargain. So once you uh, took it away from broadcast and decided to do it as a podcast, did the format stay the same or did you basically, it, it was your baby then, you could decide what you wanted to do with it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was given quite free reign when I was uh, at RTE, but um, I decided to, well, I s established a new set of uh, jingles and stuff, which I had done specially for it. And I, my first thing was I need a good name for the very first show and also to give me an idea of how it's going to sound because I didn't know exactly how it was going to work, if people were going to listen to it, all the rest of it. But I had this four years of experience and I thought it would be nice to keep that identity rather than have a completely different one. So the first guest was Louise Jameson, who's a great British actress who's been in loads of stuff, uh, Tenko Bergerac, um, EastEnders, Doctor Who, and loads of theatre work. And I happened to be at some night uh, when she was doing a talk so I just I just asked and she's lovely and she said yes so she was the very first 
uh, and that once that show had been done, um, I, I sort of had an idea. Okay, this is this is how it's going to be, and yeah. I like the way that you actually booked Doctor Who at the end because I know you're a big Doctor Who fan as well. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, that was the only reason. I was trying to be a bit cool. And, no, Doctor oh, Who is cool. There. Doctor Who is cool. She's done, you know, the Shakespeare. She's done whatever. And at the end of it, I, was, I, I want Doctor, Doctor Who. Who. Doctor Who as well. <laughs> so the idea at the time was that you wanted to have more speech. I mean, was the music still in there? Yeah, I mean, I have this thing called the soundtrack of your life, uh, where you get to uh, pick a, a track which somehow resonates um, personally, professionally, or just because it makes your feet tap, or all three is the tagline. Uh, now, I, I, it might sound a little bit like another show we we know and love on uh, another station, but um, I, I always maintain that we came up with the idea first, um, which obviously is complete lie. Um, but I don't think you can really copyright a conversation with two people and um, a music choice by one of the guests and I, it's a nice way to add an extra dimension to that person's psyche really or uh, uh, just to get an idea of what what I don't know what they what they enjoy listening to but also it might it might have some memory for them and that's interesting to hear Am I right in thinking it's been going for five years or so as a podcast? It, we're almost coming up to our seventh year. Now. I say I, I say we but it's just me but I always use the royal we to imply there's a team of ten people working on it I'm tempted to say a load of queens, <laughs> which is why you're using the wrong way. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> the podcast as it exists now, is it still the same kind of format? Is it still the same kind of program as the one that you started with? Well, what will Louise's show? In terms of uh, duration, in terms of content, in terms of overall theme, I guess you've kept the theme. There is an overall theme anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think I've uh, initially I was quite keen to get actors on. It's, oh, that'd be so cool getting actors on. Whereas I've started to move away from that. I'm more interested in in different disciplines like writing, and I, I always try to make a, a point of saying it, it's art and lifestyle. So we had Johnny Benjamin, who's a um, uh, mental health ambassador, talking about he came on to do a whole show. Um, there was uh, Zaku Nakaga, who is a, a journalist from Afghanistan. She'd written a book about women in Afghanistan and their sort of uh, the struggles they face daily. And um, so, yeah, uh, I've, I've probably forgotten what I was talking about. But yeah, it was, um, I think it's evolved. Is there a duration that works perfectly? Is it always the same duration every single show? No, uh, no, it's uh, uh, all very different. I tend to, it tends to be about an hour for uh, an in-depth uh, chat, uh, a live story of somebody, but they can go up to, I mean, I've just done Armstead Morpin, and that was actually an hour and a half because it was a big all bells and whistles show about his life as well as Tales of a City and other stuff he's written. And I don't, the great thing with podcasts is you don't have to be restricted to any length. You can do it however long you want, but obviously you want to make sure that people will listen to it. So there are different ways to approach that. You could split it up into a few segments and, and release them, uh, you know, episodically or whatever, or, um, or you can release the whole lot in one big go. If it's a music program, like a musician, I tend to release it in one big chunk, even if it's about two hours, because you can get lost in music and, and enjoy that as a whole, like an evening entertainment. Uh, whereas I, I don't think if you split a music show into two parts, I, you, you've got to be sure that people are going to come back for part two. <laughs> so, you know, um, yeah. So in terms of the content, um, you've, you've, it's, it sounds to me as if it's quite flexible. In as much as you can, um, one, one of the arguments about podcasting is that they are radio shows. And one of the things about radio shows is that they have a beginning and an end and they last for, say, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, whatever. So w w 
if you're looking at, um, as a person who has made, I don't know how many podcasts, but it sounds like a hell of a lot over seven years or so, would you say that uh, it is a liberation, it is a flexible thing compared to radio? Yes, it is, because obviously in radio you've got a certain amount of time and it's got to be to the second. It could be like a 29 minutes and 30 seconds or 28 seconds or something like that. So I'm very used to And then when I was doing it for RTE, I had a, an absolute time restriction of 59 or was 58 minutes, 30, I can't remember. So I had to stick to that. And it's, that's very good discipline. And also you don't particularly want podcasts to run and run and run for the sake of it. It's just because you've got lots of audio. I'm always very tempted when I get the voice of whoever, but I want to keep everything in. And I have to remind myself, no, it will probably be better to cut it down. Like if you're writing a script or anything, you know, trimming things down usually makes it makes improves things. Um, I had just to say, I have two um, versions of SNS. There's one called Bite Size, which are shorter shows, which are about 15 minutes long. And they are basically things that are happening now, like a book is coming out. So you interview the author about that book rather than their whole story. Or um, there was a all-male version of Romeo and Juliet. So I went to, was it Southampton? Southampton, I think, to interview them. But yeah, I mean, I think the important thing is that you don't want to just be w- waffle on like I'm doing for hours and hours and hours unless you're really happy with the content, you know. Um, but I try to do life stories of, of people who might be in a public eye. And I want to I want to throw the kitchen sink at it. So people, that is your go-to thing. Oh, you want to know about Esther Ransom? Listen to my show. It's all there. It's all there. <laughs> now, you are uh, technically minded. Uh, well, well I lo- a lot of people would disagree with me there. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're technically minded. Let's put it that way. Uh, so in terms of, um, because I think some people are afraid of podcasting, of, of putting out programs online, because... There's that next step, isn't there? Once you've, uh, it's not as simple as, as coming up with an idea and then sitting down and, and actually recording. Once you've got that far, there are still some steps that you have to take. And, and sometimes it's not that easy or it's not that simple to understand what you have to do. Did you find that daunting? No, because I've been a studio manager for... Uh over 25 years now blimey O'Reilly and um, uh, so I'm used to setting stuff up and all the rest of it um, you obviously need a microphone at least one um, you want to make sure you've got a good good. Um, you've not got too many reflective surfaces bouncing around so it's going to sound all tinny and nasty I know somebody who uh, I met uh, recently who's uh, who's won gold awards for the British Podcast Awards now his stuff is brilliant First of all, it's totally copyright free. <laughs> now, I do bend the rules a little bit when it comes to the old clip of uh, people because I like to illustrate my stuff. And um, But what he does, he has a bit of generic music to introduce his show, which presumably he's, he, he's got from somewhere or whatever. And uh, then it's just him talking. Uh, and it's short. They're about five minute segments. And so I would say that's if you want to come up with a really uh, cool, different approach to like, something talking about life or love or whatever, um, those little bite-sized type of shows are more likely to be listened to than it's like a five-hour epic, which means you can really focus all your energies on that five-minute program. Um, and also, I was talking about the quality of the sound. What this guy does, he actually records his shows under a duvet. He sort of sets up these chairs and puts duvets over himself, and he has a torch to read his scripts. But it sounds like he's in a, in a professional BBC studio or, or wherever, which is fantastic. So... If I ever get kicked out of the BBC, I'm going to have to remember that. <laughs> of course, most of the studios here are, in fact, just duvets. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, 
the the next thing that people uh, perhaps assume that they are so fabulous that they're going to become famous overnight and their po- podcast is going to go right up there to the top of the charts and they'll win awards, etc. And that doesn't tend to be the case. Uh, but also um, that whole thing about uh, then publicising the podcast and trying to get more and more people to listen, that's really hard too. Um, yes, it, it, yeah. Uh, sorry, that was a rhetorical oh, question. Yes, it was. Yeah, sorry. Question mark. <laughs> um, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I have struggled for years to get anybody to listen to my show. I mean, <laughs> that's not that's a bit of an exaggeration, but I mean, I, I put my shows on SoundCloud, then I share them on my personal uh, social media, but I also have like pages for the show on social media, which is Anybody could do that for free. So that, uh, the minimum you need to do is that. Make sure you've got a f- uh, like page. Get your mates to like it, whatever. And then you share the shows on there. Get your shows on other platforms like Spotify, uh, iTunes. My one is on SoundCloud, which allows my shows to link to Apple uh, Podcasts. Podcast syndication with radio stations. That's a good one. Local ones, independent. Um, ones overseas, like America. Why not? Uh, where they have uh, stations playing certain types of music. So you're playing similar sort of music. You might want to contact them if you think you've got something that they might want. Um, uh, YouTube, also YouTube. Bung your shows up on YouTube uh, as audio tracks. And, uh, you know, for the image that you need, get a logo done or um, a pic of your face or the guest or both of you. There's loads of options. Um, if I'm interviewing somebody quite uh, big, I, I will suggest to their people or to them that if you like the show, would you perhaps consider embedding it in your on your website and stuff like that? And some have and some haven't. A lot of the people I interview, because they get interviewed such a lot, um, tend to forget to bother to retweet it at all. I'm thinking of a recent example, <laughs> somebody who's who's I know has heard the show and messaged me and said he really liked it, but he just hasn't got around to retweeting it. And it is so frustrating because I think their, their angle is, well, I've done my bit. I've, I've done the thing. I don't be doing all this nonsense. And I, I sort of get that. But it, it is very tricky. You just have to keep trying. If you can get somebody to knock you up a website on the side of you know, reasonably cheaply, or do it yourself via one of these various things you see on on um, uh, online. Um, that's something else, is, which is very good to have. Yeah, and meet other podcasters. I've just been to a, a meeting where it was um, actually LGBTQ podcasters meet up, and so it was about thirty of us in this pub, and we got a bit drunk, and uh, we followed each other's Twitter, and you know, it was it. It just made you feel you were less alone, because um, particularly if you are doing it on your own, like I am, you do feel very isolated. I, I mean, I could be. I can be mixing stuff in the middle of the night sometimes, working throughout the night, and it is it can be really soul destroying, particularly if you're at the early stages when you're just doing the editing and you're cutting little clips out and you're trying to illustrate. So I will listen to the whole show and I will write down how I can illustrate it to sort of zap, um, zap it up a bit, and then then I have to record all those clips uh, separately. And then so it's only when I'm actually gathering it together and putting it together that that gets exciting. Um, I can't remember what your question was. <laughs> Um, well, you answered it, though. Oh, good. I'm so pleased. <laughs> Which is good. Uh, one last question, and then I'll release you back into the wild to scamper through the corridors of power. Okay. Um, is if you had to give uh, people who are coming fresh to 
podcasting for the first time. What um, is there one piece of advice? An impossible question. You can you don't actually have to answer straight away. You can have a think about it if you want. I can think. I can. You know what? I know. I know exactly how to answer that. What is your passion? What do you want to do a podcast about? If if you want to do a podcast, then then make it count. Have something to say, or or find people who who you can talk to who have something to say. People you are interested in, because that enthusiasm comes through the microphone. If you're genuinely excited to speak to Santa and they don't have to be remotely famous it could be your mate down the road who's done this or that I don't know or it could be something more on the more philosophical bent there's so many different types of podcasts out there but have a passion come come to it brimming with enthusiasm and uh, that will take you over so many hurdles just because you'll just want to plough through brilliant thank you very much <laughs> yes thank you very much <laughs> And our thanks again go to Classic FM's finest Bob Jones, who could be heard weeknights from 1 till 6am playing some soothing and rather beautiful tunes. Well, before we play out with some music of our own, let's take an amusing behind-the-scenes glimpse at an SNS recording session, this one featuring our wonderful new voiceover man and purveyor of strange accents, Mr Anthony Townsend. Four minutes of joy and unexpected hilarity coming up. One, two... A one, two, three, four. <coughs> that door's closed, isn't it? Oh, sorry, there you go. Right, this is uh, Anthony Townsend uh, portraying Armistead Morpen, reading his like memoirs and shit. All right. Lovely, I'm glad you got all that. That was important shit. When do you want me to start? Oh, when you're, we're recording now. Oh, that's marvellous. We'll just use that. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm. Listen, a little trade secret. I am better on first reads than carrying on, and I'm even better if I'm just doing sight reading. <laughs> At first, I thought this was because Eddie was a Yankee, by way of Minneapolis and Miami, who vehemently disproved of the Confederate monument on Capitol Square. But but this is a very long sentence he's written here. Morpin, you're a bastard. Right. <clears throat> At first, I thought it was because Eddie was a Yankee by way of Minneapolis, Minneapolis, oh, who vehemently disproved of the Confederate monument on Capitol Square and dis, disapproved, disproved, disapproved, of course, it disapproved. Could he possibly have put more fucking <laughs> syllables in there? A little bit more. Well, I could go completely Blanche Dubois, but I'm not gonna. <laughs> or Blanche Devereaux, whichever one you prefer. Sausages, Mr. Bond. If only live theatre was so easy, darling. I just say the word, you create the performance. Because I didn't do any warm up, so you know. This is the warm up, there we go. Ever so correctively, to my genital. To my genteels. Let's just do it again. Come on. Did I tell you I'm getting a TARDIS? Like a full-size TARDIS? Somebody is giving me a full-size TARDIS. How dare you? I can get it wrong on my own. I don't need your help. All oh, right, that goes up to dildo. Okay, it's quite a long bit. <clears throat> he was cute in that silky, sulky, vaguely Latin way that promised a career modelling under... <laughs> modelling under... <laughs> 
He was cute in that silky, sulky, vaguely a lot. He was cute in that silky, sulky, vaguely Latin way that promised a career modeling under a thousand times. But the very least, it's not going to get a damn He was also absurdly in. in he was also. At, shut up. He was also. What, what, what? Only read one of his books. Have you? Turn the recording off. <laughs> I loved it, I loved it. I just never get time to read. He doesn't write about TARDISes and Daleks, no. so what's the point? Trouble with my teeth there. Okay. Do you mind if I take them out? If someone had told Billy that today his life would change as dramatically as the latest Jerry Brookheimer bop, bop buster. Brookheimer blockbuster. Brookheimer blockbuster. God, that Paul. I'm going to slap him when I see him. No, 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 no. You have to tell me. Stop apologising. You're taking up my time. Fuck you, Burston. <laughs> right, and boy it up a bit. Sound like you've got no friends or budget. Oh. <laughs> now, bring it up a bit. Bring it up a bit. Bring it up. Now I need to pause because my phone's turned itself off. Yep, 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 yep. Do you mind? I'm a legitimate actor of the film and theatre. <laughs> Once more through for luck. Thank you. <laughs> right, thanks. Bye. <laughs> Great job. See you. Money in the bank. Sausages. Mr. Bond. Oh, sorry, there you go. Anthony Townsend there. Well, that about wraps it up for SNS's first ever yearbook covering our shows from Series 6, produced in 2019. And what a bumper pack series it was, too. Series 7 begins in February 2020, but don't forget that all our shows from Series 1 onwards are available to hear in their entirety via our website, snsonlineshow.com. We play you out with a final track by Melbourne's finest, Mr. Brad Wolf, with some background colour by the artist himself. I'm Nick Randall, and I do hope you've enjoyed the show. Until next time, goodbye. Yeah, my heart beats for you. You're the only one that beats for when I'm cold and alone. I look at pictures on my phone, and I see your smile, and I see your face. And I wanna know, do you feel the same way? Okay, this track I really, really liked. Dear Lover. It's a collaboration with um, Pally, Palais. A very proficient track. I loved it. How did you get together with this uh, guy? He was just um, he was just um, around in the studio. Um, he was doing his own stuff, and I, I wrote. I still love Dear Lover. Um, I, I personally love. It. I think it's one of my my personal favourites. And it kind of, I'm glad you mentioned it because it's really slipped under the radar. A lot of people haven't really ever mentioned it, but it's always been one of my favourites. Because um, it's it's very funny. I don't often write love songs. It's more heartache and stuff, but it's a love song. Um, you miserable and... bastard! <laughs> <laughs> oh well, yeah. Well, wait, wait, wait for Spectrophilia. Uh... Uh, but no, um, and he was in the studio and, and he wanted to sort of feature on tracks and he was a young rapper and um, yeah, he's, I, I, he's he's not falling off the radar. I'm sure he's doing his own stuff a bit, mm. but he, I, he doesn't work around the studios I, as, that I do anymore. But at the time I said, yeah, this is my song. Do you want to, you know, and he, and he freestyled that. That was his little rap bridge is completely freestyled. He had no, he had no lyrics. He just completely 
went in there and did that off the cusp. So I that, and I love that even more. So and it gives me a bit of street cred. <laughs> I feel like I'm almost a bit like Madonna, you know, leeching on to all these young kids these days. But no, like, uh, um, <laughs> but it does really work in a strange kind of way because I wrote that song literally. Um, obviously, it's a, it's a riff on you know, um, there's a hole in my bucket, dear Eliza, dear Eliza. That's sort of where I where it came from, and I <laughs> turned it around to there's a, there's a hole in my heart, dear lover, dear lover. There's a hole in my heart, dear lover Can you fill up my heart like no other? There's a hole in my heart, dear lover There's a place I can find All the things I left behind Here's a heart full of song Enough to survive Can a melodic spirit sustain a whole life and can people be trusted to listen to her can a lifetime of heartache become your life's work there's a hole in my heart dear lover can you fill up my heart like no Can you feel it, my heart? 
like no other There's a hole in my heart, dear lover There's a place I can find All the things I left behind SNSonlineshow.com, your brand new one-stop shop for all things SNS. Take a tour through our wide and diverse collection of shows and listen in to our exclusive range of in-depth interviews spanning the popular arts, featuring actors, writers, journalists, stand-up comedians, musicians and more. You can also enjoy our shorter bite-sized series covering vibrant new theatre, television and book releases. And with our Arts Lifestyle Remit, you get to explore issue-based topics, including health, mental health, women's rights around the world and LGBTQ. Contact us with both your comments and suggestions for future guests. And don't forget to read up on our blog, regularly updated with articles and photographs, a forum where everyone is welcome to contribute. SNSonlineshow.com, your one-stop shop for all things SNS. SNS.